I use this duct tape for everything. And they're like, what? And like everybody's mind was instantly blown. Hello and welcome to Entertaining the Idea, season two, episode number seven. This is the podcast where we discuss the creative process from the perspectives of generating and consuming content. We are your host. I'm John McStravick, along with my partner. Hey, I'm Anthony Hudax. Anthony Hudax, great to talk to you. Uh, great to hear that voice after we're yeah, still in our uh, sort of kind of semi-quarantine lockdown, safer at home, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're going on week seven or eight. I've I've lost count at this point, but uh, I just I wanted to check in. I don't even know what day it is. I, it's crazy. That's why I just wanted to check in with you, see if you're doing good, and make sure you dried out since our last episode and nothing else oh, crazy yeah. is going on. You're not, you're yeah, not losing yeah. your if shit. Anybody, if anybody missed the last episode, you got to check that out because I do get fairly loaded at the end. We recorded. We don't normally record on Saturdays. We normally record during the week, but I had the longest week and then uh, ended up having way too much while talking on the podcast. So John carried me. John carried me home figuratively from the bar of discussion. Well, that is the magic of editing. I think we uh, worked around it pretty well. Maybe your sign-off really was the big uh, hint at where you were at, what your state of mind was. But uh, it was still a great discussion. I don't remember, not in the way like I blacked out. I just don't like recall what I said during the sign-off. Well, actually, we definitely cut that down as well. But uh, maybe maybe we'll throw that back in on the tail end and I'll repost it if we feel like it. Or we'll see. Maybe it'll be a part of our soundboard that we're creating of uh, just weird, wacky things that we say over time. And we'll just drop them in there. I can believe that. I can believe that. Yeah, but that was that was not my intention. And no, no, it's like, it's all. When good, I, I I ended up <laughs> texting John the next day, and I was like, uh, I didn't mean to get the drunk and be on a podcast. Oh no, we're all good here, man. Everybody, uh, we all have our moments. Wow, <laughs> we're just here trying to make some good conversations. So all, oh, yeah, all sure. is fine in the pod world. Just also want to mention, I'm going on week three with uh, Pop Screenless. Uh, so I'm still not settled on if I like with or without a pop screen, but I'm just being lazy this week and rolling without protection because I don't feel like going upstairs to get my pop screen. I will apologize in advance if there's any pops or anything, but I think I did pretty well last week without any uh, big noises or uh, clicks at any moment. So we'll, we'll see how it nice. goes this week. Nice. Yeah, I am I am dedicated raw dog in it. No pop screen, just like right there. Mouth to blue ball. Yep, mouth to blue ball. Snowball. There it is. Well, you know, one thing that I am getting crazy about, and this doesn't actually have to do with quarantine, but man... I just have you to live in Los Angeles. All you LA know what this is about. They all have LA apartments that are these vertical plastic blinds. Yes. They are the bane of existence to Angelinos and I'm sure many other cities. But man, do these things suck. Like these are just cheap, easy installs for landlords and they are ugly. They are always just not sitting properly the way they are. There's always light leaking in. And the worst part of it is they break very, very easily. With being just directly against the sun, they get very brittle very quickly, and they are constantly falling down. And I, I don't know why. It just feels like the longer I'm in quarantine, the more I am seeing them fall down. And I have a routine of I have this setup of taping them and then cutting a hole back in at the, the top and then putting them back. And then they're usually pretty good. But they just keep falling down. I had an old routine where the tape wasn't good, and the tape would then lose its stickiness and fall down. I just can't stand this and it's just frustrating. I started, I'm going to start uh, 
I'm going to start recording my experiences on Twitter in my, what I'm calling the forever battle against the in the, my battle of the blinds. It's my forever war. So I don't know. I just do you experience this? Do you have this in your current house that you guys oh, are renting? We don't have them. No, we don't have them in our current house because we're but every apartment I've ever had had those. And it wasn't until we rented a house that we stopped having those blinds. They're the worst, and the problem is once you start cutting holes in them, like punching a new hole so that the clip can hold it up, mm-hmm. then they start being different lengths at the bottom, yep. and that annoys me. They're the loudest thing when you try and have your window open to get some air circulating. It's just like this rattling. Yep. Like, yeah. All the time, they're the worst. Especially, and, and then if like you open up a door, you're in a closed room. You have the windows open, and the blinds over, and you open the door, and then this gush of air comes through, and then they're all just flapping in the wind. That's usually when one will just fly off. It's just, it's just one of those annoying things that is just like it's never going to end though. Until I rent a house or buy a house, it's never going to end. I know you have to. The way you have to get rid of them is you have to either take them down yourself and then store them somewhere. So that you can put them back up at the end. But I don't understand, like, who came through and gave landlords all these things. Like, they had to be given away for free. Because I don't understand why every... Because you're right. Every single apartment in Los Angeles has those. And they're crazy. It's like... I, that's it's why like, I don't... Even, even nice apartments, they have them. It's like, is there is there some sort of, like, mob syndicate that is, has these all these landlords, like under their thumb that makes them buy these from their person for that's all they do. And somehow they have it hang something hanging over them, like some sort of racket. Like it's insane. It's a wild mystery. I think somebody is blackmailing somebody. And the only way they can put it, like somebody like in the city inspector's office is probably getting blackmailed by someone in the mob. No, like, look, we'll let it go, but you got to help out with my friends blind business and they're like kicking money back i i don't know it's just it's so weird but anyway i just feel like getting a little little bit off my chest as i i've had to probably fix about like i think one two three four five blinds probably within the past week and it's just every time you get it up you feel satisfied you're like yeah i beat you this time and then the next day another one falls down and then don't even get me started when you have a kid a child on a changing table and always just grabbing at the blinds that are right next to them oh yeah kids kids take those down with no problem whatsoever yeah the only way i've found to sort of defeat the problem is actually this is a hot tip for anyone out there you have to take duct tape and and basically fold it over the top. Yeah. So that you okay, and then you punch a hole in that. Yes. That's what and I then do. You hang Okay. That's the only way I've ever found to like keep them there at the right height and then that tends to to leave it forever in the until the clip breaks. Because when that damn clip breaks, oh, then yeah. you're stuck. Because then there's no thing even to hang up. You can't even hang a thing up if the clip breaks. So I've been lucky. Right. I don't have too many clips breaking. Knock on knock on wood. But part of the problem for me right now is the tape that I'm using. So the blinds are all white. They're always white. That's the only color they come in. I don't yeah. want it to look old and uh, all janky and everything in ghetto. So I use, I have this like white sort of like um, it's not duct tape. It's just some sort of really sticky tape, sort of like duct tape. The problem is it's not actual duct tape. It's just this white tape. And that was what I was saying was where I would tape it. And then it would start after a while, it would lose its stickiness. And I guess from the heat or the exposure to the sun, it would then would start to just drift down and then it just fall off again. Now it's just this tape flapping up there. It's 
uh, it's it's never ending. So, but you're right. You are. I, I do exactly what you do, except that I'm probably not using the best tape, and I have to upgrade my tape. Yeah, it's it is it's crazy. I think that's the only reason duct tape was invented, and then they were like, "Oh, oh this also works on ducks," ducks. <laughs> like, which I don't quite get. But all right, it happens. Like to have that tape specifically for ducks just feels wrong it feels uh, like over especially because it's such a multi-purpose utility tape that there's other uses that are so much better than for just ventilated ducks right like and that's what you decided to name it after of all the things that it's used for that's what you named it after although i wonder if it was like some hvac guy who's like hey i use this duct tape for everything and they're like what and like everybody's mind was instantly blown they're like, yeah, duct tape for everything. And then he like was the first one to make a duct tape wallet. He's like, kids in the 90s are going to love this. <laughs> but then it's even more interesting, the fact that then the actual name brand of the best known duct tape is called duct tape. Like they decided to just yes. make that one letter change, but still have that phonetic sounding name so that you can't really tell the difference, but then you're not getting necessarily the the Kleenex problem of like your thing gets generalized so much that now it's just called Kleenex for whatever brand it is. It's a yeah. weird dichotomy there. It's very strange. This See, the, both the, the duct tape market and the vertical blinds market, the rackets, there's clearly just some sort of like mob situation going on where it's just like guys that have like controlled the market under some probably forced physical intimidation at tactics this probably is like the hot dog in the whole bun situation where you know hot dogs are sold in packs of eight and buns are sold in packs of 12 so you have to buy more hot dogs to make sure you have enough hot dog buns like this has to be the same thing i think the blind industry is propping up part of the duct tape industry mm-hmm. so you make sure that there's always a need because no other tape works to keep that the way because I even tried gaff tape, and gaff tape doesn't work as well mm-hmm. as that. And forget about paper tape. Paper tape is garbage. <laughs> no, 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 no. I have Come found on. that electrical tape sometimes is a good reinforcement underneath the duct tape. Sure. That is a possibility. But it can't be by itself. But no, oh, no. Electrical tape's too stretchy for that kind of job. So, all right. Well, maybe somebody will do a documentary and a big investigation into the duct tape racket and the vertical blinds racket and put it on oh, Netflix. 100%. And maybe there's like a Joe Exotic kind of guy behind it all that'll make it really interesting. Uh, so somebody get on that. I'll watch it. Tony will watch it. And that's all that yeah, matters. Yeah, so. I will. Oh, I'll even, if, if anybody makes that documentary, I promise I will promote it as my thing at the end of the show. Absolutely. Where we do like our call outs and stuff like that. Oh, I'll, that would I'll, be the spotlight of like that. the year for us if you were to make that. So Yeah. Or maybe we can make it a main topic. I'm going to double down. Ooh. If you make that documentary, we'll do it as a main topic. Wow. All right. See, we're, we're giving you we're giving you this, the time and the space here already. We're calling it. So yeah. if anybody That's wants to free. get there, free advertising as a main topic and a spotlight of the year. All right. Well, uh, let's move on and get into just some quick follow-up. We had to follow up on Schitt's Creek's wine discussion. So now I remember what you were talking about. The wine discussion, the wine labels. 
yes. So, yes. Okay, first off, it did happen in season one, so you were correct about that. Now, I when right. once I went back and I thought about it, I was like, oh, yes, the wine discussion. And then I went back and watched that scene real quick, too. It's a quick scene. It is brilliant, I, I 100% where it's after two of the main characters uh, have sex and then, but the one of them is questionable on his sexuality, at least up to that point, we weren't sure about, you know, what was his preferences. And they do a wonderful job at kind of explaining that without actually saying what their, what those preferences are. And that was the most amazing thing about it. And it's just a wonderful piece of writing. It honestly is one of the best written scenes like I had seen in a long time. And my, my favorite part is that the conclusion of the scene, because they're on their way to a dinner party is they just get the biggest bottle of wine. (laughs) Like they just get the biggest one. And I'm like, ah, that makes sense. After this whole like moment though, if he's looking through each bottle of wine looks as if he's trying to find like a good, nice bottle. And then at the end, he just grabs the biggest bottle. But also I love the beginning part of it where the girl's kind of asking him or kind of telling him, I like red wine. And he's like, yeah, I do too. And he's not picking up on it for the first like two times that she's sort of hinting or or leading him down this conversation. And then he gets it. And then he goes on his side and explains what he's liking. But that's part of what I I enjoyed about it because I didn't understand it either until a moment. And so it's just real characters, but also fit with the characters and their how they kind of interact and their diatribes that they have and their sarcasm with each other. It just fits perfectly in with how their relationship dichotomy is. Yeah. It's, it's great. It, it works on a lot, a lot of levels. Cause it also then does show how good those two people are mm-hmm. together in a relationship because once she's making the innuendo, basically he doesn't even like flinch at jumping right into it. As soon as he, as soon as he knows the game, he's in playing with her. And I was like, that's so good. And it's just a great scene because then they have a counter scene on the, I think the front end of that between the dad and a friend of the dad's talking about it because he was kind of drunk and just like, you know, just saying it's hard for him to, he doesn't care, but he doesn't know how to connect or necessarily understand it, but he's fine with it, that kind of thing. But then you get into those two and it just explains it better, but without actually explaining. And it's just a wonderful piece of work of, explaining something without explaining it and not being on the nose and it's just fan it's just wonderful and i agree i'm I'm glad you pointed it out and made me go back and watch it i remember watching it and and specifically thinking how great of a scene it was it was just that i would go got confused with the other wine scene and episode that they also did in the same season so there there is a lot of wine in that show so that is that is an easy confusion to make especially especially because that was such a small little scene too but yeah it was right and i remember it's standing out of my mind the first time I watched it. So very good. So thanks for pointing it out to me again. Uh, keep watching. Sh- I'm keep watching Shit's Creek. Uh, again, I'm. it's this just nice, easy show. Uh, so I, I think people should kind of see where it falls for them. I, I don't think it's for everybody, but it is an interesting show that tries like new ways of doing things. So, uh, all right, let's move on to what have you watched this week? Tony, you want to start it off? Yeah, man. I binged Waco, the series with uh, Taylor Kitsch um, as David Koresh in the Branch Davidian. It follows the siege at the Branch Davidian compound, which I would completely forgot lasted almost two months. Was it that long? I'm familiar with the general idea of it, but I've never done a real deep dive into Waco. But I, I know that's where the term like don't go Waco on us, that kind of term stuff all came out of that 
that situation. Yeah. So what? Uh, where where'd you watch it at? Was this on Netflix? Um. Yes. It is. It's on. Shoot. It might be Hulu. It's on either Netflix or Hulu. It's on one of the free like one, okay. not free ones, but it's included with a subscription. Okay. Um. It was good. No, it was on. It was on Netflix. I think it just came to Netflix because it, it was one of their top rated ones. Yeah, I and I, I think I now. saw the ads for it on Netflix. You know, in their preview. Uh, box whenever you sign into Netflix. I think I saw it like a week or two ago. It was good. Like Taylor Kitsch was really, really good. Like okay. it's hard to play a cult leader, I think, because you have to be, you're kept in check by, you know, what happened because it's a real story. Mm-hmm. So like they have recordings of David Koresh. They have like, him talking and speaking. So he had his mannerisms and everything like that. So you're bound to that. But then to make that person charismatic enough that you would be like, as an audience member, understand why the people in the, in the compound are there. He did a really nice job of being that charismatic. I thought overall the acting in it was, was very, very good, but he especially was a, a standout as, as just being, quite a good David crash. I was like, Oh, I get why those people are in there. And then the story it's based on two books. It's based on the hostage negotiators book. And it's based on one of the people that survived their book. And so I feel like what they were taking liberties with was the personal conversations that were happening between people. Right. I mean, which is typically happens in this type of story. I mean, you got to, you have a dramatic license and in, in that kind of thing. So, and were they kind of uh, jumping between different perspectives of the different type, these characters or did they, it was it an overarching, just one main FBI agent type of thing or ATF agent. Like what was the, how did the story set up go? So the way they started is you start with the Branch Davidians in Waco and you you get a sense of like what their life is like. Um, David Koresh brings in another guy, um, like brings in a recruit. So he's how you see the the life of the Branch Davidian compound through the through recruit's this, like, eyes. Character. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, but it starts with. The whole thing starts with Ruby Ridge, which was another... I don't know how much people remember, if people were even paying attention back then. I'm old enough to remember when the militia movement was a big thing in the 90s. Right. And one of the one of the tragedies of this was this incident on Ruby Ridge where uh, family ended up... They were trying to have a warrant served for uh, gun possession because a guy had sawed off the barrel of a shotgun was what the charge was. And that makes the shotgun illegal. And they, the ATF, um, raided the place. Okay. And a standoff happened and it was just a family with kids. Yeah. And the, and the wife ended up getting shot by one of the snipers and it ended up being this big, big, like just gave everybody a black eye, like the ATF, the FBI. So that and that, but then that's why when Waco was happening, they were super conservative of how they were right. approaching and they, the going they in. They did not want another Ruby, Ruby Ridge, Ridge to happen. And I remember Janet Reno being a huge part of this, but I just remember that being part of the news. I didn't really like. She's not even really in the movie at all. Okay. Um, they mentioned that there's pressure coming down from Washington, but. 
you stay with this FBI negotiator and the negotiator. So there, so he's kind of the protagonist of the story that you're following around, or is it dual protagonist right. with also the recruit inside? Exactly. It's, it's, it's a, it's definitely a two hander, but you're not, it oddly does not become David Koresh versus this FBI guy. Mm-hmm. They're actually talking a lot through an intermediary character mm-hmm. who is, who has his own story and everything like that. Okay. And I won't ruin it cause he has a very good storyline. Um, so they do a nice play on the two sides that are like kind of warring for this one guy. And then, you you know, he has his whole storyline and what happens to him. But they have a lot of their dealing with their internal politics on each side of this yeah. situation. And yeah, that's interesting. So I wouldn't mind checking it out. And that's that kind of character is a hard to play because you have to actually be charismatic, but then also yeah. show those cracks of craziness, because if not, you get too sympathetic to the character like that's why it's a weird dichotomy to play when you play like cult leaders and and people who are supposed to influence people into what they're doing because you have to show how they did this but then you also want to show this other underlayer of they are actually crazy because then it's this weird interplay of making the audience care for that character but then also showing bits and pieces so they can also pull back a little bit to understand that no, he is actually crazy. Like it's it's an interesting wing thing to both write and and play out. It this actually is very sympathetic to the Branch Davidians. Okay, um, it's I feel it's much more critical of the government response okay. than it is about the Branch Davidians, and they don't portray them necessarily as crazy as you would think. Okay, and that's fine. And that's that's where, fine, That's too. where I think is the big grain of salt that I have to take because there are things that they do that you're like, well, this is this is clearly nuts. Right. And there's and there's parts where you're like, I as soon as this would have happened, like any sane person would have walked out of that compound and not had anything to do with David Koresh or his beliefs. But there is another part where you're like, you're like, oh, these aren't the people that were portrayed in the news. So right. that's where I'm actually like really interested as to what that whole thing was about. But it's very good. Well, that very sounds good. good. It sounds like it has its point of view, though, which is always a good thing to have in this type of situation. So even if you're maybe don't necessarily at the end agree with the point of view, but at least they have it, which gives it a stronger footing to tell the story that they want to tell. Very much so. Very much so. Very cool. All right. Well, then we might check it out. I wasn't sure about it because I saw, like I said, I saw the previews and sometimes for these, you know, ripped from the headline, uh, you know, um, shows or movies that remake events in the past uh, can be hit or miss. So but it's good to hear that you actually think they did a pretty good job at it and because it's not easy. So maybe I will check it out. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Awesome. Uh, Okay, so then. What I watched this week, uh, I finished up season two of Mindhunter, and it is just, I, I have to say, this is one of the most amazing TV shows I've ever watched. Uh, I It's just, it got even better in season two than over season one, which is like a tall order. I, I honestly didn't think they were going to hit this bar because season one was so amazing. And it was, I think it was like three years in between. Um, it was two years in between the end of the first season, which is Netflix. It's on Netflix. So it, you know, it was a binge show two years between when the, they each premiered and I, I wasn't sure if they'd be able to carry over and where the show was going to be going because it was left very open-ended after season one. And they just did so such amazing work with season one and 
they just nail everything from the pacing to the tone, the atmosphere, the writing, the acting, the direction, the score. Like you can see all these parts working and moving, but they're all working together harmoniously. And it's just amazing seeing it all come together, even though if you kind of know what you're looking for, you can see them happening individually as well. And it's just to me pretty rare to see all of that come together because sometimes it's really great acting and a really great story, but like the direction is kind of in the background and kind of, you know, a little more generic maybe, or doesn't quite have its own style or voice. Uh, but this one has all that. The score is amazing. And I mean, uh, it's so uh, just a little background on it. It's, it's created by this guy, Joe Penhall. Uh, and it's based on the uh, book called Mindhunter Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit, which is basically uh, back in the 70s when the FBI started. It was just a small group of people in profiling and how they were looking at uh, they were looking at uh, high uh, high profile murderers and how they and they went and interviewed them and tried to start to understand how they thought and how their process was and were there any kind of patterns that they could glean from this and then associate that to current issues going on with any kind of murders and crimes that were happening and try to extrapolate possibilities of how they could hunt out and search down crime uh, criminals that were actually in, in the present time. So it was about putting this all together and just the way they started it off, it, it's, you know, usually when you do these type of stories from cradle to the grave, like even though it's not a biopic, it still can be a little boring in the beginning. This was to me just super fascinating from the beginning because they weaved in small parts of personality and interpersonal uh, bits from the main characters, but not a whole lot. Like it was only as the season progressed that you get a little bit more into their personal lives where from the beginning it was more about their work life at the FBI and their struggles to with what they saw as like old tactics and old ways and they needed to start looking to modernize ways of strategies of the FBI and then working through that process and the bureaucracy and just starting things, something out new and then working from there. And then the actual interviews that they created with these uh, serial killers, these, or these real, they weren't called serial killers. Then these, these murderers though, that they were interviewing, like they make really like mini event scenes within this entire, within each episode where they go and interview these people but these scenes that they interview these seri- these murderers, like you call them serial killers, they interview these murderers is just so fascinating and interplay of like how they work with these killers and what kind of questions they ask and what kind of questions or answers they give to the our characters. But to me, it's like a masterclass in writing dialogue because that's all it is. It's three people in a room talking, but it's so fascinating about like how they show like the inner thoughts of like this murderer and how the interplay of the two FBI agents and how they're asking questions. It's just fantastic. It's just, it's, it's strictly amazing, simply amazing. Yeah, it is. It's definitely one of the ones that I liked. It's unfortunately, it's one of those shows that I can't watch with my wife. Um, and that really limits the amount of TV time I get. Okay. And she's just I, not into those kind of dark. She's crime. not into no Any of that dark crime stuff is definitely not, um, her her jam at all so uh, any like horror or whatnot yeah that definitely makes it more difficult because it does go down some dark paths and and actually I don't know have you seen season two yet I have not I actually haven't even finished season one I was um, I think I was halfway through season one and then I got distracted and then 
it's one that I keep forgetting to go back to. Um, I really liked it. I really liked the, the first couple episodes. I liked the romance that the one character had when he's meeting that girl that he's dating. Mm-hmm. Um, where they're in the club and they subtitle it because he can't hear her. Yeah. I thought that was a really cool scene and a very fun way to do that. Yeah. It, and, and well, and part of it is, so uh, David Fincher is the executive producer of this show and probably like a... He directed the pilot too. He actually directed seven episodes over two seasons. He oh, directed, really? I think... Oh, yeah. It, and typically... Yeah, it, usually what happens with these type of shows is that a high-profile director will come in and direct the pilot and kind of set the tone and the style of how the show should be from then on out. And then they bring in more seasoned uh, directors for television to kind of continue that on. But they, they take off of the style and substance of the initial pilot. But yeah, he directed the, I think, first three episodes. Or he directed the first two episodes of the first season and the last two episodes of the first season. And then he directed the first three of season two. Uh, they also had uh, Andrew Dominic also directed two episodes, three episodes in season two as well, which I found fascinating. And uh, Carl Franklin also directed the last four of season two, and he did uh, Devil in a Blue Dress, and he's done a couple other noir films uh, in his career. So he had an interesting. It was interesting just to see these guys do some television. Uh, but within this specific style, I, I was super excited when I saw Andrew Dominic's name pop up. I was like stunned to see him doing some television. And again, no fanfare about this. Nobody know, like talks about this. And it was just really interesting to watch. And you can see small flourishes of his taste kind of seep into those episodes that I was watching. So I, I loved watching that because I love his cinematic style uh, to how he directs his movies. Oh, yeah. No, that would be very interesting. Yeah, I- one thing about the pilot that I didn't understand until a couple of years ago, if you direct a pilot, you get paid on every episode of that show in, for as long as it runs. I think you probably usually get executive producer credit on it then. Right, but you get paid no matter what because you're setting, like exactly what you're saying, setting the tone, setting the look of the show is coming from your specific vision, which is why you tend to have like, Brian Singer directed the first episode of House. Now, he's also an executive producer, but like... And Martin Scorsese did uh, Boardwalk Empire as well. Right. But they'll get paid out for every single episode thereafter because they're basing it off that... Same thing if you write a pilot and it goes to series. Even if you get kicked off the project for whatever reason, you then get paid in perpetuity for, for for that work because you're creating the thing you're creating the the, the visual representation yeah of the, the visual yeah the story the everything and how the tone of it even if it changes and they become something different but i because i always wondered why you had such high profile directors doing that and like what it, what would they care if like you know great so i get one paycheck to do like house and then it was and then you're like oh yeah Oh, that's interesting. See, I, I didn't know that little nugget that they get paid out over time, but I guess usually because I saw them as they got EP credits as well, but maybe that's what they do. But I didn't really see it that way. But that's very interesting. But I because I worked a little bit 
in scripted development for a while uh, and I solved how that's when I started learning about this and this was becoming a new trend in like the late aughts uh, early tens of like high profile directors doing the pilot to set a tone and a vision plus they get to use their name in the marketing that they're involved with this show that kind of thing so it plays on many levels so in the end paying these guys out over perpetuity of the show is well worth their high profile nature because they usually like I said also get top billing on the show to, to bring eyeballs to it and everything so but they do. They they set a tone, and it's interesting. And I guess it's also scratches yeah. a creative itch because you do get a little bit more freedom in television on certain regards. And I think for that kind of stuff, they they probably enjoy it. So back to um, uh, Mindhunter, though. I, part of what this show does it explores like the dark side of humanity, which I know is like a big big uh theme that david fincher just absolutely loves like if you've seen interviews with him like that's what he always goes back to he always thinks that there's a depravity within the human condition and he loves exploring that and if you look at his movies it kind of speaks for itself so that's what it kind of does it just looks at the dark side of them by examining humans and like the ones who've done the darkest things possible and but then it kind of counterbalances that with our main characters and their struggles living within normal life struggling with just being good and upright citizens or what's considered that, but then also having that darkness kind of gnaw at them while they're surrounded by it in their daily work. Uh, and it's just really fascinating. And it does in season two kind of go even darker. So it's definitely not something that uh, Joanna would be into because season two goes a bit darker than, and honestly it went on a path that I wasn't expecting. And then when this specific episode happened, I was a little worried about how they were going to handle it from then on out because this was maybe around the midpoint of the season and honestly they handled it so incredibly well that it got even better and I tweeted out it was just like the show this show to me is so painfully good that it hurts it's frustrating it's so good to me and and it felt that way after it took a, a slight turn in direction of the story and I was worried about where it was going to go they handled it so incredibly well and the big part of what this show does, it just it shows incredible restraint in how they express all of the ideas that they want to do. And that is like to me the top line to take away from the show is it's it is like incredible how much restraint and how conservative they play with what they have and what they show you and what they tell you. And it's more showing than telling. And that that to me is like what is so great about the show and I think what draws me into it so much is because it's then becomes very visceral in the pain and the struggles that all the characters are going through with what they're dealing with while also doing this like really dark, deep work that they're involved with and how they actually sometimes project that with those people, these, these bad people that they uh, are interviewing. But there's also other layers then off of that, just like the like systematic bureaucracy within like government and workplace and local politics that you have to deal with and interpersonal relationships and work relationships and uh, like gender and sexual orientation and in the 80s and late 70s and how that plays into things. And so there's then these other layers that they they touch on and they they actually did a better job in season two i thought getting into these interpersonal relationships and these other layers where in the first season it was always with that kind of hands distance reach like arms reach where they would kind of touch on it but not dive that deep into it so they actually did even better job season two i think getting into those aspects a little bit more which i think made it an even stronger season so again i i I highly recommend seeing it it's um it's an incredible show that does what they incredibly do well is balance 
It's a show of incredible balance, confidence, and self-control of both the story and the characters and the mood. And I just find it a startling piece of television that uh, is unfortunately in limbo of whether it's coming back for season three, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, I easily put this in my top five of all time, my favorite shows, even though it's only had two two seasons. Absolutely. Um, it, really? I get the same feelings okay. from this show that I did from watching Mad Men. Uh, that's that's how strong of a show it is for me uh, and the type of show that I, I, I really enjoy. So hopefully it'll come back. It's in this limbo where David Fincher is busy on two other Netflix projects and they have released the main cast from their contractual obligations, which means they are free agents. So it's hard to say if they will come back if they're not already you know, on another show somewhere. David Fincher has expressed interest in still doing. He has ideas up till season five. Uh, it's just that it seems to be based on his schedule. But if the characters are, or the actors are available and he does want to get back into it, it does seem that Netflix would, would make it happen. So fingers crossed that he is still interested in once he's done with these other projects and, and brings it back. Cause they've actually left some cliffhangers here, uh, both with our main characters and this other B story that they have going on with this main, this other serial killer that you see in small vignettes throughout the season. So I hope to get more down that okay. path. Yeah. I, I hope they bring it back too. I got to catch up with all that so we can have a proper discussion of it. And I really would be curious to see what you think uh, about the show, just since I have, I'm so strong and passionate about it. What, I, I'm so strong and passionate about where you were, The Magicians, is how I feel about the show. Unfortunately, I have less seasons than you do in The Magicians. So, uh, but I am curious to see just what your take is on uh, my yeah, thoughts and just your general feelings on it. So uh, maybe we can do a follow-up later on when you get a chance to do that. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. All right. So then uh, let's move on into the current event topics. So originally we were going to dive into, uh, uh, we were going to start our current event topic off with the reworking of set life after the pandemic, but we had a breaking news that came in and completely knocked that topic out of the water. Amazing breaking news. It's amazing. It is absolutely fantastic. And Tony, you know what? I want to give this one to you. What are we going to talk about? What is this amazing, fantastic breaking news? We're going to talk about Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise starring in the first movie, first movie to be shot in space. Oh my God. OMG. WTF. <laughs> this is amazing. I saw this come by and I was like, I instantly was like, that's it. We're talking about this. I, everything is getting reworked. We're going to change this episode around. We were talking about Tom Cruise and shooting a movie in space. It's going to be amazing. I don't know if it's a smart idea to let him up there because I've seen Battlefield Earth and I know that he could be like calling Ooh, aliens and cut. mounting an attack, but I I really I really can't wait for this to happen. I want to just know the logistics of it. I heard that Elon Musk um, yes. is possibly involved, SpaceX is possibly involved, and that NASA is possibly involved. Nobody's confirming anything officially, but it seems like it's all a go. So that's, yeah, so that's what it seems like it came out. NASA has tweeted out something about working with Tom Cruise and the going to space or something. And then Deadline picked up this story and then added in a little more tidbits. And then, yes, Elon Musk even yeah. then tweeted out something like happy to be involved with Tom Cruise or something like that. I can't remember the exact tweet. But uh, so my basic understanding Something from like what that, I've yeah. read I read on deadline and then on the verge which is where I first saw it was that like 
Tom Cruise is working with NASA because he has plans to shoot a movie about space. So now they're somehow led to the idea, well, let's shoot it in space. And somehow it's going to be on the International Space Station, which is possibly where they're actually going to do some filming. So this is all bananas. And to add on to that, so supposedly SpaceX is going to be has a rocket that they're going to be sending humans to space in 2021. And Tom Cruise will be one of these people on this rocket. So again, that was a, a another thing. I'm just like, that is crazy. Just like the fact that they're sending people to space and then Tom Cruise is going to be on this, like a high profile person like that, like crazy, craziness, bananas. I... Here's the thing. I don't think they can actually shoot it on the International Space Station. I have a feeling that there's probably a lot of very delicate stuff going on up there that you wouldn't want to bring them yeah. plus a like Tom Cruise plus a film crew up to space. I would much I'm it's much easier for me to believe that SpaceX will do something where they're going to shoot something into space and allow the couple orbit you know, a couple of times orbiting like the earth to shoot out like right. 10 or 15 scenes that'll happen. And then they'll bring it back down. What I really am interested in is, and this I'm sure will be in the behind the scenes documentary is the logistics of getting somebody ready to go to space. Like I know Tom Cruise is really fit, but there's legit protocols you need to follow when you're up in space. Like it's, like astronauts are trained very well trained like they're almost cultivated <laughs> like you, to do what they do right like that's a it it'd be like if somebody's like oh we're gonna do this movie about navy seals and we're gonna actually shoot a scene <laughs> during a mission it'd be like okay like you can do that and i'm sure that there's safe ways to make that happen but like at the same time well then but then it's not even just tom cruise because we're talking about filming it like even if it's like a skeleton crew like you still feels like that means a couple of people that also have to but you have to be like cameramen who are like you need a cameraman yeah you need an audio and do all this stuff and that are then willing to take time out of actually doing their job and do all this protocol work like you're talking about to to get up into space so it's i the, the lack of details just leaves the imagination to just wander which i think is the most fun part of all of this is just like what are they talking about how are they going to do this this is crazy like and it, it like the space station, like how wh- exactly? Like, what are they doing with the International Space Station? Like, how are you going to film on the International Space Station? Like, what is Tom Cruise going to do on the International Space Station? That's interesting enough to be look part of a movie. Like, I, how many takes are you going to do? Like, what what exactly are we talking about here? I, it's and to understand the way that like just lighting works in film. I I don't know how you're doing that on an international space station, like setting up extra lights to to cause any sort of like dramatic mood shift. I right, like, and is it actually going to be more interesting to see him doing this in space for just the fact of that, or is it like better to just be on a soundstage and look as real as like Interstellar does? Like, that is the thing. I wonder if it'll be one of those things where the gimmick is going to be bigger yeah. than the movie, which is has happened before, like. I think a lot of the, you know, we didn't end up talking about it, but I think a lot of 1917 got kind of squashed in the gimmick of being the single shot movie. 
Um, where I think people focused on that a lot more than what the movie was. I think another one that actually, and I, I okay. don't mean to right. say gimmick in a, in a pejorative way, but uh, one of the ones was uh, Crazy Rich Asians, which I am a huge fan of rom-coms. It was just solidly a good rom-com. Do you like rom-coms? Like, I love them. You know this. <laughs> and dance movies. I make no bones. <laughs> Sadly, just a, a really, really good rom-com that I think got overshadowed. Like the how good of a movie it was was right, overshadowed by the story of it being an all Asian cast, and and I think that was one of those things that it wasn't that it wasn't important that it was an all Asian cast, but it was like it felt like that people overtook the actual like work that they did rather than it's just. You know, they actually did great work rather than it's like, oh, they're all Asian. It's like, who cares that they're all Asian? It's to a small degree. It's like, again, it's important, but it's like, why don't you actually focus on the work, which to me is like progress anyway. But it was great. And I'm wondering if the same thing will happen with the space movie. It'll be like, oh, my gosh, is this the part they filmed in space? All right, we're waiting for the part they filmed in space. And it could be like a great movie. And people are like. Yeah, but they like did some of it in space and like that overtakes everything. And then you're just going to talk about those few moments and then you're going to take yourself out of the movie actually watching because you're like, oh, this is that part. And you're like then like nitpicking every part of like the what's in the frame because you're like, what can I see is like, what does this look like? Is it high quality? What's the production value? Like, oh, look, did they make a mistake there? Like there's all those intangibles that happen that way. So there, that and that goes back to part of problem. We talked about this last week with just when you're uh with like flashbacks, when, when you're doing something, if you're going to do some sort of uh, use a tool or a different uh, style of doing something that is not common or natural to the film, you kind of have to do it from the beginning and set it as this is a rule for the whole film so that then people get used to it and they forget about it. But if it's just like so if they did almost I'm saying the whole movie from space, yeah. then you almost would forget about they're doing this movie from space, except occasionally when it's like some crazy thing, except that when it's just like a small scene here or there that's from the space scene, then you're going to get pulled out because it's like, oh, this is the space scene. So that is, I agree. So that is unfortunate, but we'll see. There's so many no non-details in this whole like announcement, non-announcement that I just want to enjoy and revel in the idea of this. And I just want to bring this up because I have such an appreciation for Tom Cruise and I feel at times he's underappreciated. I do as well. Yeah. I know there's baggage that comes along with Tom Cruise you alluded to a little earlier and and that's fine but everybody has baggage but when we're just focusing on what he does as a actor and a movie star like his love of movies and his dedication to his craft is really almost unparalleled it seems in the movie business uh, I'm sure you could come up with a few comparisons but like he's one of the top people that really just enjoys what it seems like he does and from everything I've read, again, I don't know the guy personally, but I've read a lot or in, in different here, different things, just working around and stuff like that, that that man really just loves movies. He loves, does whatever will be the best thing for the film. He's very collaborative in all the stuff that he works on and it shows. And he's always just kind of pushing as much as he can himself and like the boundaries of what films are, can do and, and just tries to really make the best work that he can do. And I just feel like this is part of that, even though like don't get me wrong, like we just talked about, there could be a gimmick part of it, but I also feel like this is him just trying to think outside the box and see if there's some interesting new things to do. I, and I a hundred percent agree. And I, I know that it is one of those things that it's legendary, like his work ethic, just in general, like it does, like there's 
a couple actors and or a couple of people just in general in this industry that just have this legend around their like work ethic and Tom mm-hmm. Cruise is one of them and then like Daniel Day Lewis is one of them and like you know Jack Nicholson is another one that you just hear like legendarily like they're they really dedicate themselves to what they're doing and with Tom Cruise starting down this little jag and with the Mission Impossible movies of doing like one big crazy stunt that like I think has in a in a way primed people for this being something that you'll it'll be featured and you can like let it go and it'll be a thing but they may be thinking exactly the same way you're thinking because the big stunt in um ghost was it ghost protocol or was it rogue nation where he was hanging off rogue nation the, rogue nation the, the, plane? the jet yeah that was that opens the movie so that you get yeah. that over with. Because I remember the other one where he had to do the high altitude. Like, that was Ghost Protocol where he was climbing on the, the right. side of the giant building. That doesn't come until like halfway through the movie. And then before that, he does a, his big stunt was like doing a dive into this like thing. I forget what it was, but um, but that was coming at the end of the movie. And it's like, I think they realized, like, if you're going to do something like that, you got to put it right at the beginning. It's like with Alfred Hitchcock. He used right. to do this thing where he put he put himself in all of his movies. Right. And he would do it in the place that made the most sense. Like, so, but then people started looking for him. So he had to start putting himself right in the first scene or right at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. So then it would be like, okay, he's not in it anymore. Like, stop looking for Alfred Hitchcock and just watch Janet Lee get murdered. Exactly. You know, like... Yeah, well, that 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 is absolutely great points, and and maybe they'll do something like that because I I'd even think of it that way, like you just said, Rogue Nation putting in the beginning, they got that, they made it a stunt. I'm sure he was involved with the whole planning of that, though. That makes sense because he's also a world class marketer. He's the ones who started the idea of like a world tour to do for big event movies, that kind of thing, and you make perfect sense with that that started off in the beginning then that event that stunts over and now we can move on and just settle into the movie so you're and hopefully maybe they're thinking something similar in in this regard so i'm sure they are but until then this was a great little just beacon of light uh in this weeks of like somber news that just allows the imagination to just run wild and it's fun and it's enjoyable and let's just kind of revel in that for however long you want to do it so thank you tom cruise yes thank you tom cruise All right, so let's move into our main event topic of the day. Talk about writing jokes and creating a comedy routine and also how that works into other aspects of comedy writing, specifically within screenwriting or story writing. So Tony has a background in comedy. He's been in stand-up comedy for a number of years now, and we've had discussions on and off over time of just the influence that it's had and reworking his craft and honing in and and learning a lot of new ways and and discovering things that he couldn't do before that he isn't able to do now because of of moving into this scene of comedy writing and comedy stand-up so we were just going to kind of get into that so tony first off i just wanted to ask like where did you when did you choose to kind of get into stand-up comedy like why did you try decide to go that route because you were already a writer and, and writing screenplays and stuff like that before you sort of made this hard choice to go into stand-up well honestly to go back i used to for like two years of my life i was a professional actor and i was with this touring acting troupe and we went all over across the u.s and we went um over to england to do tours and and they were stage plays 
So I had that acting thing and I really enjoyed being up on stage. Mm -hmm. I just didn't enjoy acting the way other people like talked about it. Um, and I was like, oh, I, and it takes a lot of like dedication to, to do acting. And I never felt that I was particularly good at it. Um, and then when I moved out to Los Angeles, um, I, I, wa I wanted another creative outlet. And when you're writing stuff, um, it's hard because you don't get to see the fruits of your labor unless it gets picked up or you uh, become a staff writer somewhere or whatever. Um, you don't actually get to see anything come to life. And that's what I always liked. So um, in 2012, I had been uh, laid off from my job at an advertising agency, laid off, half quit, um, and was looking for something to do to kind of fill that uh, creative itch and um, my brother had just moved out here and he had always wanted to do stand up um, in LA and I was like I, you know this sounds good he was taking a class and I said I'll, I, let me take the class too I'm going to jump into it and the first time I got up on stage you were allowed to have your paper with you and you had to write five minutes of material Okay. and I got up on stage and all you could hear was just the rattling of the paper. It was just like, because I was shaking so hard. I couldn't even read it. Um, and it was terrible. And it was a, a terrible, terrible feeling. And uh, But by the end of the class, I was like, you know, you work on five minutes throughout the four or five weeks that the class was. And then okay. you got to go perform at the belly room of the comedy store. So I got up on stage at the belly room, was doing my routine and everybody was laughing and really responding. And there was this one guy in the front row who literally was like not like hitting his wife, like with the like kind of slapping her like, oh, my gosh, this is so funny. And uh, like just seeing somebody assault somebody over <laughs> one of my jokes made me so happy that I was like, okay, I really want to keep doing this. Um, so I did. So did you feel like that was like your surfer's high or a runner's high there? Did you kind of get hooked when you had that? Was that your big moment to that you really? That was the thing that actually, you know, kind of hooked me. But then once you, I left the class and then to, to do comedy at a mm -hmm. comedy club, okay. you have to do what's called getting passed by the club. Um, so the first audition I went to was right. for a comedy club called Flappers in Burbank. And I did my audition and I got passed right away. So I started performing at Flappers. And um, then what hooked me on that was actually just the comedy scene. Like there's a, I don't know how to explain it, but like when you're backstage with a bunch of comedians there's a camaraderie that is super supportive and fun to be around like they're people who make their friend like it's all the people who make all their right. friends laugh and everybody's at different points in the game um but then you just sit around and bullshit and you're joking and it's just so much fun hanging out at the club um, that like, like I made like friends through that and everything like that. It was really just, it was the scene that really kept me once the joke writing started. You just mentioned with writing 
to yourself screenplay and scripts and stuff like that is not only do you not get to see the fruits of your labor until a long time from now and with a lot of other people involved it's also lonely and you're not getting the instant feedback where part of the is the support network and having people there and oh yeah kind of talking you through and and being there and champions of yourself backstage where you don't get that obviously you're in your own head when you're just writing in your scripts in your room by yourself yeah and that's a great summation of my long and rambling story. Yeah, that that is exactly what it is. And it is very much that instant, it, that instant reaction. I And the two things that really drew me to it were, number one, it's all you. It's just you and a microphone and your mm-hmm. wit and your need to make the audience laugh. So there is nobody like rewriting you or anything like that. You're just rewriting yourself and you're just being your authentic self. And the second thing is that the feedback is so pure and so immediate, like it's binary. They either laugh or they don't laugh. And there's a difference between saying something that's clever and saying something that's funny. And that was one of the things that actually took me the longest time to learn was that clever things don't get laughs. Clever things get nods. So if you're going to be clever, be clever in your setup, not in your punchline, because if your punchline's too clever, people just kind of like nod their head. Like, I, honestly, before I like sat down to do this podcast, I was watching Jerry Seinfeld's latest special. And there was a couple of jokes at the beginning where I was like, oh, that's clever. But it wasn't, it didn't hit me and make me laugh. I was just like, that's just a really clever observation. That was the hardest thing for me to learn. But then once you learn that, then it's binary. It is like they're either laugh or they don't. You said something funny or you did not say something funny. That's the as simple and as complicated as, you know, doing stand up is. That's super fascinating to the idea of that where you get that instant feedback. So, you know, if it worked or it didn't. So then you can instantly go back, iterate this and make it work better so that more people like it. I want to talk about this is just because I'm always curious and interested in, to learn about comedy because I don't have a natural predilection for it. Like I don't have like a, a quick wit or even even a slow wit. Like it, it takes me like I have to sit down and I have was, to sit down and funny. actually like see things after they happened. And then I'm like, oh, that would have been a funny thing to say then. And then but I mean, I'm, this is like two days later and I'm like, OK. Well, at least I thought of the joke. It may have been like way late, but I thought of it. I'm not very good reactionary with jokes and things like that. And I also know that part of what I want to learn more of how to get in the framing and mindset of always thinking about a joke or how you can make something funny. And it's something you have to learn and, and practice. But I think I also have to look into being taught different techniques and ideas. I would have to say the biggest the biggest technique, honestly, is... Like, I do the exact same thing. Like, there's times that, like, I was like, oh, I should have said something, like, that was a witty comeback, and I think about it two days later. But here's the thing. This is the brilliance of comedy. You write the thing down, and you write the scenario, and then when you go and tell it on stage... You're controlling the narrative. You won the... uh, Yeah, you should... You shut down the argument. You just won. Because, like, they don't know that it took you two days to come up with that. They don't even know who the other person in the story is. You're making it all up. But it has the resonance of something real. All right. See, see, there you go. See, that's that's a great point. So, like, when I go... And I, I have seen some of your shows, and I've seen... We have another friend who does it. And I've been to other friends' uh, comedy shows. And whenever I go, I'm like... I really feel like I could do this. I feel like I could come up with jokes and 
I could go up there and I could deliver them. Now that would be the thing I have to practice more of is like delivery and, and timing and stuff like that. But I do feel like, and especially when you see certain, cause usually these are kind of comedy showcases after a class. And so like, same thing, my friends are learning the process as well. And that's where you're going to showcase. So you do see some more people who are challenged in their skill of comedy who are really maybe not cut out for it or are super, super, super novice in the idea of even writing anything, any kind of narrative joke. I feel like I can at least be a, above like that very bottom of people who don't know or don't have it in them, where at least I can have some semblance of a foundation to at least be okay-ish. I don't know if everybody has that feeling when they go to a comedy store, so that's the other part of it. It's like, is that just everybody feel like they can be funny watching people not perform well? You know, it's like, I don't know if that's just me projecting against people who are, are struggling. Up yeah, there. well, that's how that's how you have to start. And it, it may be a little bit, but it's also like, that is part of a comedy just in general, is that some some stuff just doesn't work. And some people's sense of humor is so weird that it's going to be hard for an audience to find them but that actually was that thought was the thing that actually kept me going for the first because the first right. two years that you do stand up are brutal because you're terrible and i always remember thinking like well i'm not the worst one here there's room right. for me to not be at the bottom and then eventually you do get better but like just being not the worst was like all i had for a little bit <laughs> That was the motivation. That was like the yeah. least the small boost that it gave you to kind of push through the the tough times. Well, that's great to know because that that's how I feel like I will feel if I were to explore this more. Um, for you, you mentioned that you were doing some acting before you even came out to L.A. And what was the performance aspect of it like? Doing a proper performance and, and doing these jokes as like was that difficult for you? Do you enjoy the being up on stage under the lights in front of people? Or was that a difficult part for you? So maybe I'm exactly like every other person who does this, or maybe this is just unique to me. But for me, I hate every moment until I get up on stage. Like there's so many times that I'd be sitting outside, uh -huh. like waiting for my name to be called, being like, mm, I wish, I hope the show gets canceled. And it's just this weird thought that I would have because it's so nerve wracking, all the stuff that could go wrong before you get up there. And some of it is just bombing. And like once you bomb, like the only way to get immune to bombing is a bomb a bunch of times. And then you right. kind of realize that it doesn't matter if you did a good job or you didn't do a good job. But when you bomb, it hurts. It, like it, it physically hurts. And like walking off stage after turning in a terrible set. It, it's like you got an F on a test and the teacher just like read it out for the entire class to hear. And then at the end of being like, this is what not to do. And they like just like hand you the paper and then you have to like sit there with it while everybody just knows how dumb you are. Like that's that's how the, that bombing feels. But then after a while, you're just like, ah, I don't care. Like there, there, it's not going to be another show. So when I was in development, uh, we were working on a show with a group of comedians. We were trying to do a show around. And I was doing a lot of pre-interviews with them just to kind of get an idea of their background and history. And they came in and also talked about it. And they were they all talked about like we got into what's it like to start up or be a stand up. They're all stand up comedians and they all live together or something like that. Anyway, but they talked about bombing. They're like pretty much bombing is a rite of passage. Like you have to bomb. Like you first off, you will bomb. That's just that you have to first accept that. And then like, 
it's almost a badge of honor once you bomb. And then you also learn how to bomb almost where then like you were just kind of saying after a while, it's like, yeah, whatever. So like, have, have you learned to thicken your skin? Like are, are you got a pretty tough skin now? Yeah, I very much did. Did it take a while to kind of develop that thick skin? It does take a while, but a lot of it is a lot of joke writing or a lot of stand up comedy is honestly just sort of a con game because the way to make a stand-up performance feel good is you have to not care about the audience's reaction, but always be in tune with the audience re- audience's reaction because you're right. you're leading the group of people through a TED talk. Basically, you're talking about a bunch of different topics, but you got to keep them all on your side. You got to keep them all understanding what you're saying. If a joke doesn't work. You have, and the thing is, you have to deliver each joke with 100% confidence that it's going to get a laugh. And when it doesn't get a laugh, you can't act like that phased you at all. Got it. They, you just kind of like, and some people do the thing where it's like, oh, I guess that's where the yeah. line is. Or, oh, taking that one out of the set or like scratching that one out of my notebook or whatever to kind of draw attention to the fact that everybody knows your joke didn't work. The thing that I find the most effective is just going on to the next joke just move on right because they're not they won't think about that joke like in two jokes like they they won't go back and be like that right but and they probably will think of more of it if you're pointing it out rather than just moving on they it wasn't good they you forget about it and then you're working on the next one if the next one lands they forget about all the other non-laugh jokes that they you might have just told right because they're and that's the thing they're in the moment they're watching you do something and they're surprised by everything because they haven't seen you do it the 15 17 25 times that you've done it before so they're in the moment there and waiting for the next thing and if you're not in that moment too then there's a mismatch and you kind of just that that's interesting you bring that up about being in the moment because you're totally right me as me being an audience member you are and you're so in tune to exactly what's going on you're focused on this person so it is interesting to hear from that perspective where I mean, as an audience member, like pointing out how I am and that that makes a to me, it helps understand where you need to be as a comic in the moment when you're actually on stage, because the audience is in the present and they're focused directly on you. And so if you f- dwell on something, they're going to dwell. And if not, they'll just keep moving on like they're just looking for the next thing that's going to make them left. With that, do you what do you enjoy more enjoy more about um, stand up comedy, the performance aspect or the joke writing and like the routine creating? I definitely like joke writing. I I have a routine where I try and write 10 jokes a day. Um, And the reason I came up with 10 jokes is because at a professional level, you should be telling six to 10 jokes a minute. Like six is slow. 10 is is a pretty good clip because that's one joke every six seconds. If you're doing that, then essentially every day I'm writing you know, quote unquote, a minute's worth of material. So if I'm writing a minute's worth of material a day, if I do that for every day of a year, then that's 365 minutes of material. And probably 10% of that is going to be good. But still 10% of that, though, is still more than nothing. Or if you're only writing a joke a day or... Right. And I I think I did the math and it basically comes out to... If you do it that way, if you wrote 10 jokes a day, you basically would have a good hour in like 20 months. And that's a that's a good thing to have. 
Have you stuck to that pretty well, or do you try to do do you, you stick in the ten jokes a day? Is that something that's in your routine or a habit? I mean, it is. I I have a thing that I use um, called Every right. Day, which oh, yeah, is um, a habit tracking thing. And there's like twelve things that I want to do in a day, um, and the ten jokes is one of them. And I I try for the most part, but you know, it, I'm one of those people who goes through like phases. Like sometimes I'm like. I'm writing 20, 30 jokes a day and like a, a topic clicks with me. And then other times, like I wrote one joke and the whole day and I'm like, and it was terrible. And the, I got into a really good habit when I was running an open mic out in Van Nuys where I would write, um, I'd do the minutes worth of material every day because then that Monday I gave uh-huh. people seven minute sets, which is very long for an open mic. So then I would do seven minutes of brand new material every Monday. And then what I would do is I would come home and I put them in cause I'm an editor by trade. I'd put them into my premiere and then I would physically cut down all the things that didn't work. I didn't think I could work on to make better. And I would, essentially make my five minutes out of what I did. So when you do that, you generate material like gangbusters. And then I would actually have like virtual five minute sets that I'm like, okay, that's the set I'm going to work on. And then I can start prepping that set and making it better. So you cut out all like the not good stuff, focused on the good stuff. And then you just iterated off of that, watching that and seeing yeah. Very cool. All right. That makes sense. I was curious then you just mentioned you like the joke writing more. So like when you're going through and you're starting to learn classes and stuff like that, I obviously there's focusing on a performance aspect too, but like how do you learn to start kind of writing jokes in a routine as well? You know what I mean? Cause it's not just about the performance. It's about kind of finding jokes, but also then setting them up in certain ways and almost telling a small narrative, whether there's a, a big, you know, through line, or if it's just a very loose, like one-off jokes, there's still a way that you want to, uh, outline that out. How was that process of kind of learning different techniques and stuff like that? I really enjoyed I'm, I'm also somebody who really enjoyed school. So I enjoy learning all types of new stuff, but you're very right in every joke is a story. Even if it's a one liner, it's still a story and it has a beginning, a middle and the end. And just in joke writing, it's your setup and your punchline. And then after your punchline, you have what are called tags, which are additional punchlines off the punchline or off the premise. The first thing you learn when you learn joke writing is that you need the punchline to be as close to the end of your sentence as possible. So you want to end with that hardest hit so that the audience has space to laugh as you naturally have space to take a breath because you're at the end of your sentence. Right. And that's just like a very technical thing. So to just use the old joke, like why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? Like when you hit side, like that's the punchline, but you naturally can take a break then and let the audience laugh without, you know, being weird. And what I realized was how many times I would have the punchline almost at the beginning of the sentence And then the rest of the sentence was qualifying what I just said. So it would be like, uh, why the chicken crossed the road? You know, he's over there because he went to the other side of the road. And it would be like, okay, that's not funny. And then you had to learn. It's like the other thing is what that also expresses word economy. 
to get to the other side is a pretty tight punchline. And you learn to appreciate people like Rodney Dangerfield, who is doing this big, lovable loser character um, that gets no respect. But every one of his jokes that are so tiny and and so well done um, have such great word economy. Like he'll he'll get a giant laugh off of like ten words, and that's and when you start trying to craft jokes, you start seeing how hard it is. And the flip side is you also don't necessarily need jokes at all. There are people who are more attitude than they are jokes. The one that people bring up is Dane Cook um, mm-hmm. a lot, and then to a lesser extent, Chris D'Elia. Mm-hmm. But the, I think those are more guys who just had giant, who have giant attitudes, and then the jokes are sort of built around them. But you know, Dane Cook was a lot of attitude. He would say things just in a funny way, to it, like, and that would be the joke. But at the same time, you know, Robin Williams would do the exact same thing. He would switch between fifteen characters. And he would just be like, his joke would be like, oh my gosh. And it would be like his hairdresser or whatever. And it's like, that's right. the punchline is just him doing a hairdresser impersonation, which he had done like a million times before. So you can do all these different iterations, but the pure basic is short, short amount of words, punchline at the end. Okay. See, that's fascinating. And that, that totally makes sense though. I mean, brevity is the soul of wit. So there you go. Yeah. And that's interesting. So there is fundamental foundational techniques when you really do want to learn the art of stand-up comedy and comedy in general. It really does apply to all aspects, which will lead me into two questions off of this. So like, what has your public performance aspect taught you about the writing and stagecraft that you didn't know before? Like, how how does that all kind of work together, though, that you didn't know about writing before that? I don't know if it taught me anything that I didn't know about writing, but I think it really puts some lessons like chiseled in stone in a way that it was never concrete to me. Clarity is the number one thing. When you're up on stage, you need to be clear what you're talking about from your attitude to what you're saying. Like the best jokes work when everything is crystal clear and we get it and the audience doesn't have to wonder about nuance or wonder what you mean um or or see different shades it is a it is as clear as possible and clearly stated to the audience and then they have all the freedom to laugh because they don't have to do any thinking they're following right along with your because you're essentially doing like a mind meld with people because you have to follow along with exactly what they're saying. Um, so that was the thing that really helped me in my writing is that clarity is is a thing. And then also brevity. Like if you if you start doing wordplay in your screenplay, like for dialogue, unless you're doing something super stylized by like brick, like brick you don't realize how tedious and how awkward that is until you're standing up on stage and you're doing a joke that's based on wordplay and you're watching half the audience kind of like lose their place in what you're doing. Right. And they're not paying attention anymore. And they're, they're starting to look at their bill. They're starting to like, 
like check around for the waitress, see if they can get another drink. They, you know, talk to their friend or whatever. That's a great segue. How have you brought some of these lessons then that you've learned from doing stand up back to your screenplays and scripts that you're still writing? Yeah, it it definitely is like word economy. So I've gone through and like chopped things down. Um, one of my things that I do in my writings a lot is I'm ton and ton of like stage direction mm-hmm. that it forced me to cut that down a lot because you just want to be super clear and super sparse with what you're saying so that you're just on to the next thing. Everything that you say has to has to have a reason. Like you can't have stuff in there that just is you showing off what a good writer you are. Yeah. Because and I've seen now that I've done that, I've seen so many people do it that there'll be there'll be a sentence that's written that I'm like, well, you're just kind of showing off. That doesn't really tell me anything. And everything you say on stage has to tell you something because it's informing where that laugh is coming in. I empathize with that so much because that's part of one problem that I've noticed that I'm always trying to get better at with writing my screenplays is that I can get verbose uh, it very much so in the scene direction aspects. And I'm always trying to cut that down and find ways to economize, like you were saying, and say something with a lot less words. And I've heard this also talked about from, you know, different podcasts from screenwriters and stuff that you read and, you know, other people you just talk to that. Yeah. Especially like, yeah, producers and assistants and people who are just reading through tons and tons of scripts, they don't want to have to read more than they have to. So that's part of it. It's like giving your audience of who is actually reading a script, you know, the idea they have an imagination and they can get it outside of like explaining something very specific, but you have to find ways to convey what you want to convey in the least amount of words that you possibly can. And that's part of those things that I'm always trying to learn. And part of why I, I know you've talked about different things that writing has taught you that you're applying in other aspects. Like another one we talked about before was how you feel much more comfortable now about coming up with jokes on the fly. And I think that goes back to your practice of writing 10 jokes a day where you actually have confidence that you could get into a room and feel like you could actually contribute because you can just start coming up with jokes on the fly. And I remember you talking about how you gain that through stand-up because they, it was forcing you to do certain uh, techniques and aspects that you didn't have. Oh yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, it was one of those things where once you start training a muscle, it does become easier to do it. Another thing that I've done is I've done a bunch of improv, um, gone through the groundling school, um, and I just, during this pandemic, actually took a sketch writing class with one of the teachers that I had for only a brief time when I was at groundlings, but I had really was impressed by him. When I turned in my first sketch, I realized how much I had been out of mm-hmm that world because you know one of the things you have to do in groundlings to pass out of um intermediate is called five through the door and the idea is you do five different characters like you just walk into a character walk out come right back in and you do a character you do this five times so you have to create these bizarre characters that are memorable and that are you and everything and then when i was writing a sketch it was like all that stuff that was like a muscle that i could do that was just gone it just was not there and I turned I turned in that first sketch the professor was very much like whoo you got a lot going on in here um this is like four sketches in one 
you gotta and again teaching me the stuff that I already knew you have to clarify you have to be very specific you have to be you know right in there and that was actually something that you had mentioned that I brought into my writing more is comedy is 100% specificity the more specific you can be the 100% better it is for any joke that you're telling when your car breaks down and you're pushing it it's not your car it's like my Volkswagen Beetle that I'm pushing down the street like it's that image instead of just like the car or like I'm sitting in my house I always refer to my house like when I'm on stage I'm like so I come back to the murder house because that's where I live and like there like yeah. you get you get like the 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 way the house looks from the outside it's a murder house it's not just oh I went back to my house and it looks kind of crappy you got like a Texas chainsaw massacre house image in your head while this joke's going on and you're right and that's such a common thing and that's when I laugh the most at jokes I think is when they make some sort of personal touch to an aspect of the joke but it's not actually the main part of the joke either but they just throw almost throwaway lines but it helps you just connect with them and their what they're talking about yeah specific 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 and then i also learned that in improv too it's not it's not a dictator it's joseph stalin like you need to be as specific as possible and then the thing is like i told a joke once where people want to be porn stars they don't want to be porn character actors nobody wants to be the philip seymour hoffman of porn it's part of the joke right make it philip seymour hoffman makes it so specific that you can have that image and imagine him in a porn unfortunately philip seymour hoffman died so i biggest impact that his death had on my life is i had to change that joke so then it became the steve buscemi of porn because again it had to be like somebody that you did not want to see necessarily in those porn scenes but also somebody that was a quickly recognizable like so they're famous they're famous for being not famous right the one last thing i'll ask is like is there a difference then between writing jokes for your routines and then writing jokes for like the scripts and screenplays that you're writing is there is there a difference or is it basically coming from the same angle the biggest difference is that there's jokes that i can't do on stage that i can put in a screenplay like one of the one of the things just for me like racial humor doesn't like I don't do racial humor well I because I always bristle at it like anytime people are like you know the problem with white people is that like like stuff like that I just just not in your DNA of it's not it's not my thing so if I go up on stage and I say something that's stereotypical like racy type of thing it doesn't work like the audience can feel that I'm pulling back from it right away but if I say something that like feels more to the like core of who I am, like I tell a story on stage about a fight that I saw happening across the street from the murder house. And I describe the guy who gets out of the car as a Mexican Mark Wahlberg. And mm-hmm. that's like the, the most racial I'll get in jokes is like that because I just don't, there's something about, I think me growing up in the nineties and growing up in a very, rural area that just doesn't make me feel comfortable talking about race as a construct but then in your screenplays if you're writing if you had an idea you'd be able to explore something more but that's because you can be able to iterate and filter and work out different ways i can have i can have like the racist guy in there i can have 
I can have an actor that I know can say this joke. Like if I write a racial joke that's funny, I've, I've yeah. given jokes to other comedians. I was like, I can't do this on stage. This isn't me. But you can do this. And sometimes it works. And that's the other thing. It's fun to hang out with comedians because you do get like jokes. Like uh, people, like one of my friends was like, was like, oh, I can't do this joke on stage, but this would be perfect for you. And like, I did it once or twice. It didn't really work for me. That's cool. That's just what happens because you, you get to know who you are as a person. And then you have to be able to say that up on stage. There's just certain stuff that like, I can have people in a screenplay say that I could never pull off saying it's like, and I can right. make people be so much meaner than I'm ever to, able to be on stage. Right. Cause on stage, I don't like making pe- people feel uncomfortable. I think that might be the, the racial thing too, is I don't like that. Cause it, right, it's right. laughing at expense of one part of the audience. I don't like making people feel uncomfortable in a screenplay. I can have a character that makes people feel way uncomfortable all the time. And that's fine because I can have Ben Schwartz do it, you know, yeah. not me. So you can actually imagine that who you're going to be giving this joke to, like you said, you would hand it off to somebody else in the green room maybe, but then in your scripts, you, it's sort of similar though, where you can hand this off to a different actor who you know could land that joke. Yeah. So let's wrap it up. I just want to know what has stand-up comedy helped teach you about your writing overall and like added to your arsenal of tools to be able to write better overall, be it any stories or screenplays or anything else that you're working on. The instant feedback for sure. Like to be able to have a piece of writing essentially, because that's all I'm doing is I'm just performing a, a piece that I've written. Having that like immediate feedback can come back to you is a feeling like nothing else. But the feeling of when you absolutely crush five, seven minutes on stage and you have people with like physical reaction. I remember I told a joke and a girl fell out of her booth at Flappers. And that, that made me, that made my day. Like that actually made my week. I was so happy that she did. And it was on a joke that was fairly silly. That is fun. And it, she just like lost it and... And fell out. Now, she could have been drunk as anything and would have fallen anyway. But it was during one of my jokes. So I get it. No, that, that makes total sense. Like you you gave some joy and happiness to somebody, even if it was just a small little bit of their day. You gave you gave that to them. Yeah, because when you when you do it well, man, you you walk off stage and your feet don't hit the ground. But then when you're on stage, too, that is the other thing that I like is. You're, you have to be completely focused. As soon as you focus on something else, you lose like what's going on. I know that some comedians can do that and they're just like, this is the 8,000th time they've done it and they don't, it, they're not even registering. They're thinking about their room service order. But when I'm up on stage, there's so much going through my mind and it so quiets down to just what those beats I got to hit are. And then you're just watching everybody. It becomes so ultra focused. It's like, it's what I imagine people who are really yeah. good at meditating, what their their head must feel like sometimes. It's just there. There, man. Well, Tony, I thought this was a great conversation. My biggest thing I take away from it, from everything that you were explaining, is that I like how comedy and specifically like stand-up comedy and learning how to write jokes and techniques and routines, it kind of just forces you to do things. There's no... And you mentioned this earlier, it's binary. There is no like real gray area here. It's you just have to go do these certain things. You have to get up on stage and you have to figure out a way to execute. And you had to write these jokes to have a flow that you're able to execute. And there's just a lot of ways that it forces you to face some like uncomfortable feelings that you might try to shy away from when you're just in your own room 
writing by yourself where you're not forcing yourself to face uncomfortable truths or ways that you're doing things and really get to the heart of what you're doing where it seems like comedy and specifically stand-up comedy force you to get to the heart of what you're doing. That's what I take away from it, from what everything that you were kind of explaining, what you've gone through and how you are working through things now and what your techniques are. And for me, sometimes the hardest thing to do is to force myself to do things that are hard to do and that is something you can learn and that's, that's what I take away from that. Yeah, I would also just end by saying if anybody is thinking about doing stand-up, especially you, John, if you're thinking about doing stand-up, I would say just go out and do it because it's very uncomfortable at first, but after a while and you get into it, it does become addictive. Like I had to stop for a while because it was just too much time and I was I just needed a break from doing it it was at the beginning it was like after the summer this year that I went back and was running an open mic and doing it all over again and I really loved it but it's something that like once it gets into your soul you kind of want to keep doing it even when I didn't have the time to do it I still wanted to do it and like I'm kind of sad like there's a lot of virtual shows going on now which I haven't made the leap into doing, but I really do miss it. And one of the things that I can't wait to do once we get out of this quarantine is like get up on stage and like tell some jokes because it's addictive. It's really, really addictive. Well, uh, we'll end it on that. And I can't wait for that moment too, because then we will spotlight it here on this podcast when you are back up on stage and anybody in the LA area can come check you out. With that, let's segue. What is uh, something you would like to spotlight this week? Yeah, you know what? I'd like to spotlight this week um i had mentioned briefly that i took a class um one of the two of the girls in the class are from byu and they have a sketch group called studio c so i want to plug their show it's on youtube or you can go to byutv.org studio c to check them out they are very very funny i always enjoyed their sketches um that they brought and they have uh great energy and i checked out some of the sketches that were on uh studio scene it was a lot of fun so for the you know five or six people who listen to this uh check out studio c byutv.org slash studio c as in cat very cool yeah i clicked through the link you sent earlier and they seem like they have a ton of sketches up there too go check out studio c i'm gonna call out so i don't know if you've heard yet that roger deakins is doing a podcast it's called team deakins and it's him and his wife i've gotten through uh, a bit of the first episode and it's pretty good it's very basic it's just them kind of talking about their work and their careers and stuff like that but they're just fascinating people and like he has a fascinating career obviously and part of the reason i was thinking about him i saw this uh yesterday that he's doing this podcast but i also saw 1917 over the weekend and after the credits roll i'm like oh look who shot this okay i was like that makes sense of who shot this movie so I would say go check that out. I haven't gotten deep into it yet, but I just thought it was one of those things that if you're a big fan of his, it's probably at least worth checking out to see if you find any interesting nuggets. So that is something new that I'm listening to and checking out. They're about six episodes in. So they started it over the quarantine. Like this is brand new. This is something that they've been talking about for a while doing. And they just decided since they're home during quarantine to finally just buck up and do it and they're doing it and there's six episodes in yeah I, i'm just looking at it now this looks amazing i will, I will definitely be doing that so I, I know you're i know you're a big fan of his as well uh, as am i and as is millions and millions of people because he is a yeah. icon 
of his craft. So go check out 1917 as well. Uh, it, it's very interesting. I know Tony ta- touched on it uh, briefly, but there was the talk of the gimmick, but uh, I honestly thought it all looked pretty good and I moved past that pretty quickly. Oh, it's beautiful. Beautifully shot movie. That's my spotlight of the week. Uh, so go check out Studio C or yep. Team Deacons. And if there's nothing else, Tony, I'll talk to you next time. Next time. All right, later, man. No, like, look, we'll let it go, but you got to help out with my friend's blind business.